Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. And now, here are your hosts, Caben Kramer and Chris Quant. Hey, Chris, how you doing, man? Hey, Caben, how are you? I'm I'm delightful. I, I we've been talking are. for about thirty minutes, and I've loved every second of it. Well, and we were just talking about this, and we decided we should probably record this because well, we need to record an introduction anyway. But uh, you know, I was just telling you how much I enjoy being in conversation with you. It is so fun. I look forward to this every time. The fact that we get to record and, and put something out there is fun. But I would just do it just even if none of this was being recorded. And we could just have a chance to connect and and just converse and and that actually is is really fun because that's a little bit of what we're going to be hearing about today is is conversation and and words and intention exactly yeah back in may actually i got to sit down with someone from instagram who reached out to me on a dm very similar to the conversation with casey um this was lauren woodward she uh, lives on the east coast she actually has this really cool upbringing that she talks about a little bit but from like chicago to italy she speaks a whole gaggle of languages, which is a lot of fun. And she actually got her major in Italian with a minor in linguistics. Wow, yes. Amazing. It's super cool. So she reached out on Instagram DMs because I was doing a series of stories about vernacular and the power of vernacular to shape. And I, I made this statement in, in my Instagram stories that language is more powerful than an army. Um, and, mm. and Lauren actually, early on the episode brings that back around someone way smarter than me um said you know the the only difference between a dialect and a language is an army interesting it's like oh okay so we do we have this great conversation we meander between identity and self and culture and our view of history and our view of family all around how language shapes the very fabric of space and time around us. And it's really a conversation that's about meaning making. Yeah, yeah. And and if I could, I jumped in. There's, there's a part of the conversation too, especially where uh, you guys are talking about, and, and well done in this conversation, but about the meaning and the intention in conversation. And when you have two mindful people that are joining into a conversation, what can be accomplished there? So I want our listeners to really tune into that. And especially, it can be any type of conversation, right? Like it's a conversation that we're having right now. There's meaning and intention. Is it in a, in a relationship with a spouse or a loved one? Is it in a work relationship? You know, what are, what are those conversations? What intention? And, and words have weight, right? I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you want to look at a biblical example, you know, for those that, that, that might apply to, it compares the tongue to a sword, right? So, mm-hmm. like, we can we can really cut people down. I think you don't even have to think of a biblical example, but, like, that can be true, how, how quickly words can affect people. And even in, like, hey, can we ask better questions in our conversations, right? You know, if, if I'm having a disagreement with somebody, if I'm having a disagreement with my wife, you know, maybe I can step back back and ask, you know, a question like, you know, why are you being a psychopath right now? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but really, but you, you get my point. Like, like yeah. how you shape those words and how you phrase that can really have a big impact and intention in your conversations. Yeah. And Lauren takes us down some pretty great paths of wisdom and insight. Um, and I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. Yeah, let's do it. So with that being said... Let's go. Ooh, 
Lauren, I am just thrilled to have you on the podcast today. And so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's actually fun how we got connected because you came to um, our Instagram page because of Sharon Says So. Mm -hmm. And then in one of my stories, I was talking about um, the power of words and vernacular in particular. And you DM'd me. So let's just start there. What was that like? Let's let's just go through that story about how we got connected a little bit. Sure. Yeah. You were you were mentioning a story about um, that in order the there's more power in having a standardized language than there is in conquering land. So you would have more familiarity with the background of that story. But I was like, yes, linguistics. <laughs> this is a, and I remember I DM'd you a quote um, that I had learned. I had studied linguistics in college and I had learned there um, that a, the difference between a dialect and a language is an army and a navy. Mm. That what we deem as an official language or what becomes a lingua franca, as they say, something that kind of per- permeates the world due to value or demand, um, owns the power. So yeah, I was, I, I was just excited that someone was talking about language and talking about linguistics. Um, it's not really a topic you hear too much out in the world outside of those who study it, for example. So I was just really excited to, to jump in and start commenting on it. Oh, yeah. And it was so, I mean, and immediately I could tell that, like, you're just... A, a very fascinating and interesting person and just incredibly intelligent. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a really fun conversation. I wanted to explain what linguistics is because um, most people when I was in college and I tell them I was a linguistics major, I'd get two reactions. One of them is uh, how many languages do you speak? Or, you know, mm. I'm a polyglot or someone who speaks multiple languages, which is not necessarily needed in linguistics. You can, you can be like, say you're born in uh, somewhere in New York and you can go into linguistics and you can study that section you were you know, born from in New York. <clears throat> I mean, they, they want you to expose yourself to different languages, kind of broaden your horizon, but you can still study your own language being a linguistics yeah. major. Um, and then the second thing people would ask me is for me to correct their language, <laughs> like their English. <laughs> like, can you like correct my essay? I'm like, uh, that's the English major. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah that, that's a different thing. So linguistics is more of, it's just the science and the study of languages. So it's more of mm. observing and researching what's going on in this part of the world. How are people talking? How are they communicating? Why is this changing? How is it different from 10 years ago, 100 years ago? Um, and it involves disciplines like syntax, which is grammar structures, semantics, which is the meaning of words, uh, historical, so how things have shifted over time, um, events and things in time that could change language, like trade, for example, or globalization, um, phonetics and phonology, which is sounds, how we process sounds, uh, psycholinguistics, think psychology and linguistics, so how do we perceive the world on the internal? And then social linguistics, which is my area of interest. I had to study each of those disciplines, but I took, um, I took electives in social linguistics. So that's going to be more of like the, using language in relation to social factors. Um, your gender, which is a huge topic now, um, your age or your generation or where you live, just like your 
your, I say almonds, but just like your almonds, <laughs> your almond story, <laughs> uh, which I think sparked the, the DMs that we were having. It did. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those are signifiers <laughs> of, you know, if you're from, I think you were saying Northern California versus Southern, uh-huh. yep. stuff like that. So just Definitely. even things like that, or if you say soda, pop, mm-hmm. you know, Coke, that you can actually Google the, the map, the map of where in the U.S., people will usually use soda or usually use Coke or usually use pop. So it's a signifier of where you're from. So I was really yeah. fascinated by how people communicated with each other and, and maybe misunderstood each other. <laughs> so. You know, it's interesting because I, I just had a, another recording with someone else. So I, I grew up in the conservative Christian evangelical church and mm-hmm. no longer identify as part of that. Mm-hmm. And we were having a conversation about that transition. But as you're talking about how when if you're on an island, right, mm-hmm. your your language is one thing. It honestly reminded me of the subculture I grew up in mm-hmm. where, you know, we weren't on an island, but we might as well have been from as mm-hmm. far as like a cultural exposure piece. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's interesting how the language changed because of that. Right. There were certain ways that the world was talked about that was different than the way anyone else talked about the world. And it was a result of kind of this island within a country subculture mm-hmm. of what was communicated to children, especially, right? Because I, I, you know, I grew up late 80s, early 90s. So it was right in the the height of, um, you know, kind of the, the moral majority and post-Reaganism and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so it's interesting how how like you said, you don't actually have to be on a physical island. Yeah. Um, but but when there is that cultural isolation, it does things to language, and it does things, and then the, and then language, or I don't know, chicken or egg, your mind's wired a certain way, and so you talk a certain way, or you talk a certain way, and it rewires your mind. I don't know which one it is, but <laughs> somehow there's a connection between the actual synapses in our brains and how our brains are actually wired together, yeah. and the language that we use. Yeah. Yes, it's a reflection. I mean, in your native language, we're taking out foreign language for right now. In your native language, basically language is the vehicle to express yourself. So it's the vehicle to receive input, um, you know, what you were taught, how you were talked to. And this could also, this is also nonverbal, just wanting to include the nonverbal languages out there as well. But I mean, language is verbal, nonverbal, so how you were spoken to or what, what was discussed, what importance, um, anything around identity of the family. And this is kind of like a ripple effect. So you have your individual self, then you have your family or the environment that you grew up in. You've got your you know, greater community, maybe the town that you're in or, or the group that you're in. Again, so sociolinguistics deals with cross groups as well. Hmm. Um, then you have your society. You know, you have the fact if you're, you know, depending on your gender, like if you're a boy or a girl or other um and so yeah these all play influences and as children you're you're kind of absorbing the world and you're you're being imprinted on yeah you you take on the identity that or the environment or the experiences that you you have when you're young and then and then as you get older that can obviously change um in linguistics they talk about uh, plasticity of the brain so mm-hmm. when you're younger you tend to you have a higher plasticity so you tend to absorb language for example very easily you can hear the different sounds like if someone was speaking arabic someone was speaking chinese someone was speaking english to a child they would be able to pick up on these sounds pretty well and pretty 
easily and fluidly. And then once you hit about puberty is when that structure starts to, I'm gonna use the word solidify. I, I Again, this could be another topic of brain plasticity and the capability of the mind. But the idea is once you hit puberty, your, your structure is set, your L1 or your native language is that you can also kind of see that a little bit with identity. You start to explore your identity yeah. once you get into your, you know, middle school, high school, beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm trying to figure out where I was going with that. My brain went into like three different directions. And I was like, come <laughs> back. Love, just follow it. Go, go. Because this is so, because, because the, the, I think this ties in perfectly to this idea of like the power of language. Yeah. Because, I mean, we can talk about it from like a civilization perspective like super macro right Mm -hmm. how how the language is so powerful as to shape everything from how we plant and harvest food to how we organize our Mm -hmm. families to how we govern people like i mean it's it's language is so powerful and i want to hear your thoughts on that but also let's just let's go into that individual sense of identity and the way that language so powerfully shapes our identity you know as kids like We just absorb it because we don't question the world. We presume that the world we're in is the correct world. Mm -hmm. Like we're not, we're not born questioning whether or not we're born in the correct world. Like that's just our assumption, which, you know, we can get into how that impacts children who experience domestic abuse and other things, Mm -hmm. but there, we are organized biologically to presume that the world we start in is normative. Mm-hmm. whatever that is. And then we have to go from there. Mm-hmm. But that includes language, right? Yes. Um, so let, let's talk about children a little bit. Let's talk about the way that language shapes identity. Let's talk about it. I want, I really want to hear your thoughts on gender and the way that language impacts that and what's happening in our culture right now. Let's just go there. I mean, as children, you, you're reliant on your caregivers. So there is, there's the situation where you're being completely surrounded by a certain uh, identity or a certain group identity of sorts. But then you're also, like you mentioned about, you don't question, but also even if you do, if it challenges and threatens the security of that group. Um, I would like to comment on assimilation uh, and identifying whether that's subconscious or conscious. So for example, you could have someone from the South who moves to New York, for example, and they can keep their accent and their way of speaking because they consciously or subconsciously still identify with their Southern roots. Mm. You can take someone from the South as well who moves to New York and they completely start to change how they talk, maybe the slang terms that they use, the sounds. Um, you know, the difference between the sounds of the South and the sounds of the North, because they are assimilating and choosing to identify with their new home. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm not talking on whether that's right or wrong, because that is not the, the, the issue at hand. It's more of just speaking to how people, how people shift. And some people will hire speech language pathologists to change mm-hmm. how they speak. I love that you felt the need to clarify that you weren't talking about the moral rightness or wrongness of these decisions, because even in my head, as you were saying it, I immediately went to the, like, that was going to be my question is like, isn't it interesting how quickly we put labels on those decisions? Like we either call someone a sellout or we call someone like backwater, right? We, we have these words and it doesn't matter which side you land on. There's a derogatory word 
word for your choice. Right? Yeah, there's, yeah. there's some way of, of, and then it's, you know, what gets really interesting to me is in that conversation of assimilation and identity is this sense of how, who are you and how do you keep you, you when you're in the midst of different things. And so, you know, I'm specifically thinking about friends that I have um, who were born in countries not America mm-hmm. and are now living in America. And maybe they're married with kids, maybe they're not, but they're wrestling with these choices, right? Kind of like that classic quote unquote, like joy luck club choice of like, what does, what does assimilation look like? And what does cultural identity look like? Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be cross-cultural. It can be, it can be localized too. Um, even, you know, for me moving from the countryside into the city and then back to the countryside, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean for identity? And what is that like, how do I stay me? Or should I want to stay me? Or is there a new me that needs to be born here because now I have access to these other tools, cultural and linguistic and social tools that allow parts of me to be born that couldn't be born somewhere else? Um, That's just a massive, complicated, but really fascinating thought for me. Yeah. I mean, speaking on the the immigrants or people from a different country living in, in a, in another country, um, that will really depend on what they value in the sense some parents will, so I'm talking about the internal family system or the core system. Some parents will want their children to assimilate completely. They want the best opportunities for their kids. They want them to still immerse them in the English or, or do whatever is necessary. So that way that they can I mean, when I say best opportunity, unfortunately, that is also touching on uh, stereotypes and uh, hierarchies. But yeah, they're like, I want the best opportunity. And if that means that my child has to learn English or, you know, whatever, they'll go for it. And then some will want to preserve their language. Maybe they want, they'll speak it at home with their kids. And then the kids go out uh, into school. And obviously, the school will have a certain official language for whatever country that is. This is not just mm-hmm. the US. This is anywhere in the world. There's going to be an official language that the government, that school is taught in. And so that's the common one. But then you have the minority ones that then will have to either manage at home or, you know, if there aren't resources to teach their younger children their language, um, their native language, then that unfortunately puts a risk of of dying out or becoming extinct and that you'll see that in um, some of the native american or indigenous languages as well that haven't been recorded Mm -hmm. maybe they were oral only and um there may be less kids or uh the kids aren't learning it or you know or there there aren't the resources to have a separate you know school or you know extracurricular activity for the children to become immersed in that language and then that language could become a become uh, extinct potentially if it stops yeah. transmitting from intergenerations. Right, right, and it and it is interesting. There are so many emotions that we hold within the space of those decisions, mm-hmm. because the decision could theoretically be fairly neutral. Mm-hmm. Of this is just what I'm choosing for my family. This is what I'm doing with my kids. It could be as simple as that. Yeah, and yet because it taps into our identity, it taps into our deep, deep held emotions, mm-hmm. and so you know you'll have people who feel very strongly both ways in your life or, you know, from a similar background and coming at it very differently. 
Um, and sometimes that can tear families and communities apart. And that's, that's just another indication of the power of language. And it's, it's, it's a, it's an honorable thing to wrestle with and it's hard to find a solution that makes everyone happy. Right. Cause it's, it's language. It, it's who we are. It, it shapes us as a people. And so it matters a lot. And we have some pretty strong feelings about it. Yes. Especially if there's huge contrast between the language and culture that someone is coming from and the language and culture that they are living in or that they're trying to assimilate to. Um, this is kind of very much, I mean, this can happen to anyone from anywhere, from any part of the U.S. even, but I see it having had a lot of uh, multicultural friends. I see it particularly from people from uh, Eastern cultures who are now living in a westernized world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the Eastern communities, it's more, it's more about community. It's more about family. It's more about, you know, uh, enter religion here, you know, whatever religion it is. Um, and then now you're in America, for example, where it's the individual who is prioritized. It's, you know, maybe, it's, or if it's like, you know, one culture where that they go slower in, in the U.S. is how fast can you go? How much can you produce? Um, even just watching, I did a, I did a um, project when I lived in Italy in my immersion program where I took the Barilla pasta. I took an American commercial of Barilla and I took an Italian commercial of Barilla. And then in the Italian one, it's like they're in the fields and there's the grandpa and they're making the pasta by hand and they're talking about family and tradition, like these keywords, family, tradition, you know, enjoyment. And then you watch the American one and it's like, gives you all the vitamins that you need and it can be ready in 15 minutes. Great for moms on the go, you know, so the, mm. <laughs> the culture is definitely reflected. You're talking about the same product, but it has completely different resonances depending on the angle and the language that you're, the keywords for marketing that you're trying to capture and the audience you're trying to sell to. And isn't it amazing how marketing itself shapes language where marketing can help rewrite the values of, of that system it can buzzwords especially i mean it can be yeah. it can lean a little too far where some people are using buzzwords to to make money just to, for the sake of making money but but yeah i mean <laughs> social media and you know all these health terms like the more the more we expose things in the world um you know especially the social issues that are going on and we talk mm-hmm. about it and we listen to people and we listen to experience their experiences without judgment um mm-hmm. the more it can bring it to people's conscious awareness and so i think i also wanted yeah. to speak on that um we touched a little bit on the the immigrants but let's also touch even just you know the stereotypes of do you hear a new york accent what do you mm-hmm. think do you hear someone from texas what do you think if you hear a surfer dude from California or a valley girl, like, what do you think? What are the first things or the biases that pop up into your head that you don't maybe yeah. even realize? And I also want to add, especially in relation to children, how is that being portrayed in the media? If you take a look at Lion King, you've got Zazu, who's got this British, you know, he's an advisor, he's got this British accent. And the same realm of british accents you have scar who's the villain what does that reflect on our relationship you know an american relationship with england for example or our stereotypes why do timon and pumbaa have i think it was like boston accents why do the hyenas have you know this type of accent so 
um, even just from cartoons or from media, if the same type of person with the same type of accent plays the same type of role, mm. it imprints, especially when we're younger, um, that that's the way that the world is instead of diversifying. Maybe the New Yorker is the hero instead of, <laughs> you know, insert, you know, whatever stereotype here or like, or like legally blonde. That's another great one. Um, you know, a girl with this like kind of California accent, you know, blonde, like becomes a lawyer. So just kind of breaking through, uh, through the stereotypes, just through that. And that's a very subtle, um, I mean, it's impactful, but people don't often think about the books that they're reading to their children or the movies that they're watching, like mm-hmm. how much of that is actually imprinting these stereotypes. Oh, yeah. That's something we think about all the time as parents. <laughs> and and part of it is like, sometimes our kids get stuck in a rut that we're like, oh, man, we just, can we just feed you subtly something, something a little bit different, but then they just want to watch the same thing for the 20th time. And you're like, oh, man. <laughs> What is this going to do to you when you turn 22 that you don't even realize that you're making that decision because you watched this one cartoon and this one character and this one thing did this and you saw it 20 different times when you were like five years old. And so now here you are as a grown adult and you're making decisions that you think are your own decisions, but are actually the results of this thing you watched 20 years ago. Oh, it's yeah. you think about it constantly. Oh, man. I mean, at least you're thinking about it. That's like the first step. I mean, there's only so much, you know, we have like media, right? We have movies, right. we have books or audiobooks. So there's only so much that we can, um, I don't like to use the word control, but manage in terms right. of exposure. Um, but at least you're thinking of it. And that's, I mean, that's step one, really. And, and like you were talking about with exposure, you, you mentioned it earlier that your parents exposed you to a lot of things and mm-hmm. someone else, um, and in one of my stories, they were asking if, you know, my kids play any instruments. And I was like, no, they don't because my wife and I don't. And we lament that and like, we wish we did. Um, but we can't really model for them. Like my son has a ukulele and he has a, a piano and um, we just can't really model that for him. Yeah. And so, you know, I got some DMs and they were, and, and someone was sharing almost the same story that you shared, but with music instead of with culture, this idea that like, the the way that her parents exposed her neither one of her parents played instruments but she ended up majoring in music mm. um and you end up majoring in italian and and with a strong emphasis in linguistics so she talked about how it wasn't that she saw her parents actually doing the thing it's that her parents made a conscious and intentional effort of exposing her to that world she talked about things as simple as like going to high school band concerts when she was in elementary school yeah. right and so for you it's like your neighborhood outside of chicago mm-hmm. um and then of course later on your year abroad but like there are lots of things that your parents did too that just said a world outside of our world exists and mm-hmm. it can be a good world yeah and there's something about that that like i want to become better at as a parent myself yeah. <laughs> of like let's let's see let's just do something that you're never going to see in our own home not because it's bad just because it exists outside of us right like it's just not like something that we carry into the world and and that's okay because there's billions of things we can't carry into the world because we're just one person that's kind of the point but then how do we then create these opportunities like your parents did um of exposure that could open doors and unlock things in our kids the way that unlocked in you the sense of like, oh, actually, I want my whole life to be about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And that's, I mean, great awareness. I, and I think I want to speak to 
this is actually something that I believe in a little bit more in terms of identity is, you know, I, I've read stuff or heard things about like, you're becoming yourself or like, you're, it's almost like you're attaining yourself over time. Um, but really, I believe that you always are yourself. You kind of carry, when you're born, you kind of carry the imprinting of the society in its current state and your family and any patternings that come along with that. Um, but when you give children and people in general the spaces to explore and to be uh, free to explore, it's more of an unraveling of the self. As you, as you go through life, it's more of, I have the space and the freedom to enjoy this or to learn that or to explore this instead of, um, you know, kind of the archaic, uh, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z, or you have to be in this mm -hmm. job, you know, for the rest of your life because dad and grandpa and great grandpa were in this job or so it just, it, I think that's a great, a great aspect of parenting to allow their kids to explore and to choose what they want to be interested in because you're allowing them to explore parts of themselves that they're getting to know that are in them but now have the space to to voice themselves or to at least come forward before their eyes yeah absolutely yeah there's a like 1500 years ago um the world had an awareness of this and it's amazing how much we forget it. Right. But like the, you know, really old mystics of every religious tradition have language that describes this topic. And, and in, in the Christian tradition, Christian mystics would call it their true self and their false self. This idea mm -hmm. that like in our childhood, that, imp that imprint we get from the world um, is not just an imprint of what exists in the world, but also what the world needs from us in order for the world to be okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that really starts with the parent child relationship pre pre words, pre language. We come into the world knowing what we need to be and do for our parents, for them to keep us alive. That's what it comes down to, right? It comes down to survival. Yeah. yeah. Then as we grow up, we learn language, we begin to learn social skills, and it's all still framed around the survival framework of what the world needs from us. And by the time we come into a consciousness of self, the, the mystics would say the, the consciousness we come into is not actually our truest self, but it's actually a consciousness of our imprinted, needed self. Mm. And what they would describe as the false self. And so then we begin moving in the world in this false self and we think it's us. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like you described, and I love the way you said, it, it's about this unraveling of who you are. And, and in my head, I'm like, yes, it's this, it, you, you become aware that who you've become doesn't need to be who you are, mm -hmm. that it actually can be something more and deeper. And you begin to unravel this false self. And again, false is, I actually don't prefer that word because false has negative connotations yeah. and it's not a negative self. It's mm -hmm. just a preexistent self that actually came to you from the world instead of to you from some other world. Right. Um, and, or, you know, more intrinsically deeper beneath the world, who you are. And so then there's this unraveling of this self that this created self. And in that unraveling, then there's also this emerging and this birthing of your true self. Of, yeah. Oh, this is who I am. And this is who I can be in the world. Um, and it happens all at once and it also takes your entire life and some people never get <laughs> yeah. there and that's fine too. Um, 
But man, there's so many interconnections now. That, I mean, the more we talk, the more like this conversation is just swelling in scope, right? Because <laughs> you're talking about internal senses of identity, internal family structures, and we're also talking about like social frameworks. And then we're now we're talking about like the metaphysical of yeah. of like a you know a existential sense of place in the universe, mm-hmm. um, all because of language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's all interconnected, isn't it? I, you asked me about input actually. So I just thought of this because you said false self and you're like, I actually don't like that word because of, Mm. you know, associated with this. Um, That's another layer. So I could be Mm. talking to you. Well, I am talking to you right now. And certain words that I use, you're going to perceive them the way that you see the world. So for example, false had a specific a connotation to it uh, and a relationship to it. Uh, there's a there's a system of you know I'm speaking or communicating with you in some way and you're receiving that message or messages, but you're filtering it through your way of looking at life and you're filtering it through um, what they would call apperception. And so mm. I, I had to look up that word because I was like, what does that mean? It's been a while since I've studied linguistics. <laughs> um, but yeah, so apperception is the process of learning new info by relating and incorporating it into past knowledge and experience. This is from mm. alleydog.com. So for an example, um, I, you know, someone sees a dog and their perception is, you know, they think to themselves, there is a dog. But say that person sees a dog, the apperception is, oh, that dog looks a lot like my friend Larry's dog. That's a, an example uh, from their website. Yeah. So even just words, especially in media, uh, buzzwords, marketing, like what it brings up for you as an individual uh, is very unique to the person. And it also mm-hmm. consequently can be triggering. Triggers are also related to, you know, I could be conveying something to you and then all of a sudden you get mad at me or you get upset. And I'm like, I, what's going on? Like, I didn't really, I wasn't intending to do that, but mm-hmm. there could be something in my messaging that brings back. Uh, a memory, a bad memory, or a negative association. Um, and this is where we can get into like discord and misunderstanding, right. um, especially cr- cross cultural. Um, yeah. If people speak, I had to learn how Italians talk, not like literally their language only. I meant like they're passionate, you know, mm. people and they express themselves. And I'm just like, that's a new, a new way of, I mean, me being a little bit more introverted and more professionally polite that was like the new cultural norm I had to to adjust to and um I really appreciate that experience but that's another example of I could be misunderstanding them but no it's more of just a cultural difference right I I mean I'm that leads right into a lot of the the social pressures that have been in the United States for the last year and a half especially and of course it's been going a lot longer than that and a lot of the racial disparities how much of it is the words that we use I mean just it's it's kind of silly now and it doesn't have to do with race but like I worked for a boss who would like act weird for weeks and then finally I would sit him down and he'd be like well, a few weeks ago in that one conversation, you said this one word. <laughs> I'm like, and and it would just like it would that word had some meaning from his past, and yeah. but it happened repeatedly with different words. It was like this kind of he he, he wouldn't ever become aware of those his own self triggers of what would happen. 
he would just immediately assume and project that I meant the meaning of the word of whatever it was in his head. And then he would hold it against me that I use that word about our customers or about a product or about whatever, you know, and like, and in my head, I'm like, that was such a throwaway word. Like that was like, it literally, like it it was just, it was just a word that I picked. I could have picked 10 other words and you would have been fine with it. Um, Yeah. But it is amazing. Like, and so I actually ended up having to go through some counseling to unwork something because I got to the place where I was so like eggshell and how I would pick words to say, because I'm like, I don't know where the next landmine is. But it's yeah. somewhere in the room. And if I talk yeah. about this long enough, I'm going to step on it. Um, and yeah, and so it's interesting. But then, of course, you know, in, in these larger conversations in America with race and, and racial conversations and, and you know, and, and you and talk about buzzwords, you'll hear buzzwords thrown around like socialism or um, Marxism or, or you, we can take even just the phrase critical race theory. And how that has like 50 different interpretations to 50 different people, depending on who you ask. Um, If we're not willing to consider the fact that the way that we're receiving words is different than the sender's intention, and if we're not willing to take a step back from ourselves with non-judgment and say, here here are the words that were communicated, here's my emotions in that space, Um, you know, having some internal dialogue, but then external dialogue of like, okay, um, I just want to hear more about that because my brain's making some connections and assumptions that I'm not sure your brain is wanting to create. So let's just keep, you know, but that's just such a different approach. And I think that the world can learn from people like you who have studied language and culture and, and actually be better off for it. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's very nice of you. I, uh, I, I think the approach is mindfulness. It's being Mm. aware of your own, triggers and biases as well and then also being able to effectively communicate i'm going to box up really quickly this does not include abusive situations Mm -hmm. if someone is verbally abusive um, for example or dysfunctional relationships but say you have like a very you know fairly positive relationship with someone Um, an example is if you have two mindful people that are communicating and say one of them gets a bit emotional and that other person just is stable holding space and the other the one who's getting emotional becomes a bit more observant of what's going on you can then have you can then instead of me projecting my issues onto you I I just acknowledge oh this is obviously emotional for me and you're like yep that's cool (laughs) and we move on and so there's no relational rupture there or there's no Mm -hmm. misinterpretation or there's no like so it really takes two or more if you're in a group but it really takes two mindful people holding space for each other as they process things and um there's also i mean that's a a testament to the like safety and gentleness that you offer when you communicate with people yeah yeah gosh it's so hard to do that though because it takes it takes work on on each of our parts right and and this is where it gets into the larger frameworks of you know white supremacy is really this system that says, mm, I don't want to do work. I mean, that, that's, that might be, it might be that simple at the heart of all white supremacist structures is just saying, I don't want to, I don't want to work and I don't want to do the emotional work. I don't want to do the physical work. Um, I don't want to, I just don't, I don't want to do the work. I want, I want to export the effort onto someone else's shoulders. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make someone else carry the emotional burden of making me feel comfortable in this conversation. I'm going to 
export the physical burden of building roads and maintaining wildfires onto other bodies that don't look like me. Um, mm. And and then we and then we write that stuff into law, and it becomes yeah. these systems of white supremacy. And mm-hmm. it's and so I appreciate there is this this consciousness that has to transpire where you say, or not you, but where anyone has to make a conscious choice to say, I'm going to choose to carry my own burdens. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because there's many people who don't have a choice. They just are forced to carry their burdens plus the burdens of many other people. And then there's other people who never are aware that they've been offloading their burdens their whole lives. They just think that their life is full of trouble and hardship. And so what do you mean they've offloaded their burdens? Um, Mm -hmm. And yet that's exactly what's happened. And it's, yeah, like language plays such an important role because if we're able to have that consciousness, like you said, it can be tough because emotions, at least for me, as as a classically repressed male, <laughs> I am learning how to have a healthy relationship with my emotions um, mm-hmm. and learning even that there are emotions and there are feelings and those don't have to be the same thing. And neither one of those things have to be me. They can simply mm-hmm. exist within my body without actually defining me. And And being able to get to a place where I can be aware of my feelings, I can become aware of the emotions that arise from that. And yet also I cannot have to implicitly hand over the hormonal, attitudinal, behavioral control switch to those emotions that I can actually <laughs> hold on, retain the the control panel of my life while in partnership and conversation and awareness of these feelings and emotions. That takes work to do. That, that takes committed, work. intentional effort. That takes lifetime work. I mean, I've devoted the rest of my life to doing that kind of work to be a, a better person. To, well, yeah. better. Let's, let's, sure. I won't add an, an evolving but, human. Yes, an evolving. <laughs> an ever transforming, an upward spiral. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm beginning to introduce that conversation to my nine year old son, and I, I introduced it in, in this kind of oblique way. We we're talking about time, and I made this comment. I was mm-hmm. like, "Well, what if what if time isn't moving forward in a straight line?" But what if we're spiraling upwards like floors in a parking structure? And so every time we get to Sunday, we're actually, all the Sundays are actually, we're on top of all the other Sundays. We're we're not moving forward in a line and now Sunday's far away from us. But we're actually just on top of all the Sundays that have come before. And now we're just one next level up and this spiral. And so actually we're really close to the past because we're in Sunday again. And all the Sundays are here in the space. But in this temporal plane, we're just experiencing this one. And it's this kind of reframe about time, but it also gives permission to reframe a lot of these other things that like the sense of self and what it means to be, I might, you know, this linear trajectory of always moving forward, right? Which is a very Western concept is this idea that I'm getting better as a person because I'm moving forward, that somehow over there is better than over here. But in this cyclical spiraling sense, we can say actually like we're always revolving around ourselves, sometimes in closer orbit, sometimes in farther orbit. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in balance, sometimes out of balance, but we're always doing this circular motion. And then maybe we're just this kind of evolving, transforming self. But like you said earlier on, like we're still us. We don't become us. We yep. might discover us, mm-hmm. but we're always us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the essence of yourself, at least. And 
Oh yeah. My brain went into so many directions about like time and space. And (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, yeah, I feel like time is uh, just kind of a numerical marker that tends to be linear uh, of how we move through space, mm-hmm. how, how, and it's so weird because things can feel like they move so fast and feel things can feel like they move so slow, but yet, I mean, technically the measurement of time is the same. <laughs> so, um, how, how we manage our energy or how we move through the day, how do we slow down? But slowing down in the sense of being more present and actually taking mm-hmm. in more of our life than speeding up but again that fast pace is definitely a western uh a western uh, it's the productivity and how fast you can move is uh is prized in our mm-hmm. society i think it's starting to unravel because people's health are coming to a point where they're realizing they can't sustain that um and that maybe we need alternate you know ways of accomplishing certain goals or maybe we need to let go of the goal oh danielle laporte is great in this um i love her work but she talks about you know we tend to like have and i'm very goal oriented uh and we tend to have goals outside of ourselves you know we want this at this time or we want to reach this project or accomplish this and um she talks about bringing it back into the emotions and how do you want to feel when you you know, you work towards something, not, mm. you know, your accomplishments or the, the logistics of it, the numerics of it. So yeah, really getting in touch with your emotions. It's something, um, yeah, I mean, I suppressed my emotions for a long mm. time until my body was like, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to, you know, you either, they say like you either take a recovery day or your body picks it for you. And I've burned mm. out so many times in my life and mm. And that is a whole nother venture into health um, that I know I'm, I mentioned to you. I've gotten really into health and mindfulness because of that. Um, how do I take care of my body and, mm-hmm. and my mind and my mental health? Um, but this is kind of going off into a whole nother direction. I'll bring it back to, to identity a bit more. Um, unless there's something you wanted to add to that. I have another comment. Okay. Go, go, so yeah. speaking of society and like biases, this is why uh, this is, I mean, Sharon has helped me so much emotionally. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, I take her workshops and I, and, but just with the, um, with the politics going on in the U S and just the intensity of emotions that are going on, the social issues and such and such, just her being so fact-based and grounded has really helped keep me, uh, keep me grounded as well. But I mean, she explains that you can have, for example, the same story and it can be presented in a, a right-wing newspaper, a, you know, a center newspaper and a left-wing newspaper. And all of it is, and, you know, bias does not equal lie. You know, they're mm-hmm. all true, but the words that they choose are going to create a different effect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe the right picks a certain word that creates a certain emotion and the left mm-hmm. picks a certain word. And it can either be positive or negative. I mean, they're all the same. I could say like, oh, I you know, I satisfied my stomach with food today, which is like a positive, or I could say I filled my stomach with food today, which is kind of more neutral, or I could say I like stuffed my stomach with food today, or I, you know, overate, Mm -hmm. which is a bit more of a negative. I mean, all of them represent the same kind of story and message, but there are different emotional contexts. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's also really dividing our country and polarization. 
It is. Yeah. There's, there's this whole field that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, called information architecture. And it's, it's this idea that, um, that there is no such thing as information neutrality. Um, that data is neutral, but data cannot be communicated. As soon as we arrange data in a way to be communicated, even if it's in an Excel spreadsheet, um, or, and certainly if it's in a conversation, we are then architecting how that information is communicated. And the method by which we architect that information reflects our internally held views of the world, which means that architecture is full of our own bias. Makes sense. And, you know, this this is information architecture is used in business systems to create more effective team communication. But it, it can also be used culturally in just the sense of like every time we write a news headline and pick a photo to go with it, um, we are architecting information because there's a thousand pictures to pick from the same event and there's a thousand words to pick. Mm-hmm. And And yeah, I love what Sharon says that bias does not equal a lie. Mm-hmm. bias is simply the word we've landed on to some summarize the particular way in which we architect information mm-hmm. makes and then sense. become, yeah. And, and then just becoming aware of it and saying, well, okay, it's not bad that I architect information. In fact, I have to architect information. The only way for me to communicate in this world is to architect information. Mm-hmm. So, th- so it's not bad. It's actually very good that I do that. Now, can I be aware of the particular tools that I was given in my childhood, in my exposure in the world? You know, there are certain tools in my architectural toolkit that give me access to frame it and structure it one way or another. Okay, can I become aware of what those tools are? Okay, now are those tools still helpful for me to architect information in a way that actually moves me into the world that I want to live in or not? Mm-hmm. And, and so the more we can just become aware of that and not assign, like you said earlier on, right or wrong, right? There's, we're not making a moral judgment on the architecture. We're simply mm-hmm. acknowledging that it exists. Mm-hmm. Th- then it just gives us so much more space to just kick back on a park bench and look at the beautiful facade of this building we've created called a conversation with a friend and just look at that and say, oh, yeah, I noticed that. That was kind of cool. I know, I, you know, that part right there, I, I don't really like the way that that turned out. We can just observe it without judgment. And then we can just then iterate on it and say, well, next time I'm architecting information, now I have the opportunity to try something different because I'm aware of what I'm doing. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of like your Sunday example. Like you, you architected something at this point in time using the Sunday on a Sunday. Yeah. And then the next time you have Sunday coming around, you can change how you architect it. Yeah, so true. It's a relationship to time and yourself as you evolve. Yeah, yeah. And even the idea of saying Sunday's not far away behind us in the past, but actually we're sitting right on top of it again um, is, a, is a new way to architect information. Yeah. It reminds me of the Nautilus. I don't know if you've seen. Yes. Yes. I, I, I mean, that's. That's yeah. what I think of when you were talking about the spiraling and the Sundays and our relationship to time was like the Nautilus, the evolution of us getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. We always have a new opportunity to be, I don't know, now I'm like monitoring my words and I'm like, <laughs> they different, but <laughs> be mindful, I guess, yeah. would be maybe be mindful. And yeah. um, to add to your architect, it's interesting. You could spend all this time architecting something to a message to someone and they, they may not hear you mm-hmm. at all. 
or even the intention that you sent it. And I think that's where I think personally, the main disease or issue with the world is uh, dehumanization and lack of connection. Mm -hmm. Not to say that, you know, we all have to be the same. It's to say that we all have to have our space to be ourselves or our groups or our identities um, Mm -hmm. and be respected that way. Mm -hmm. I think, I think we're dealing at least, you know, in the, I'm sure around the world, but speaking for the U S since I live here, but we're seeing that like the, you know, you were mentioning like passing off the burdens or uh, handing the burden off to someone else kind of a thing. Like, I think a lot of that is a reflection that the inner self or the inside of yourself or certain traumas or experiences were not heard and not revealed and were not helped. And so therefore it kind of creates this disconnect where you cannot hear uh, other people's as well. So, I mean, that seems a little nebulous for me to convey right now, but (laughs) there's something around, there's something around trauma. One thing I did want to comment about trauma is that it's, I mean, everyone experiences it on some level and in some domain or domains, but trauma is like a a grenade. It's, um, It's not like an arrow or a bullet not straight shooting it's a grenade and those who are closest to the blo- the blast are hit intensively but that doesn't also mean that people maybe who've got pieces of shrapnel in them further away aren't affected or the people who are watching aren't affected and so i think there needs to be like a huge talking about mindfulness there has to be like a huge kind of awareness which i think we're experiencing um through understanding people's traumas or, you know, certain groups, their, the traumas that they've been dealing with for how many years, uh, there has to be an understanding and space to hear them. Yeah. And sometimes better than, <laughs> sometimes we, we seem more intent on figuring it out some days than other days. <laughs> Lord, I, <laughs> I'm I'm just aware of the time and I want to be respectful you. of you. I this has been just a super fun conversation for me. I've and I feel like I'm going to be completely honest, I didn't even get to a single line of notes that I wrote down to talk about because we had so much fun talking about other things. So I the the space that you create to explore and have conversation is really fun for me because there I can just tell that there's, you know, a whole city full of alleyways we can explore of of interesting conversation tidbits. So I really appreciate you and and what you bring to this conversation space. Oh, thank you so much. Likewise, this is a a mutual curated uh, safe space, like you were saying about the walnuts. Um, I think it was in another podcast about, you know, you you cultivate the environment and then you allow the walnuts to flourish themselves. So um, I appreciate you as well. And that that this is able to be a safe space because both of us are, are working at it that way and have that intention. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. This has been such a fun conversation and we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at of dustanddivinity.com. Partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com/of dustanddivinity. 
join our Facebook group of Dust and Divinity podcast community and engage with us on Instagram at of dust underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.